Well, amen. You may be seated and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6 as we continue to worship through the study of God's Word. Very grateful for Pastor Ryan and Pastor Sky uh, and they're leading us in worship. I heard from Pastor Josh last night and he's getting a lot done. And I just want to encourage you to continue to pray for him as he writes and prepares for the fall. And um, God would just really be with him in a very special way. We come to Isaiah 6 and we find God looking for a volunteer. He's looking for someone who won't just trust him, but whose trust will lead them to follow him anywhere. And so in verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 6, God simply asked the question, whom shall I whom shall I send? And Isaiah responds, here I am. I'm right here. Send me. I'll follow you anywhere. Now, when Isaiah says that, he did not yet know what God was calling him to do. If you're like me, when someone says, hey, will you do me a favor? I have a tendency to say, well, what is it? And then if they tell me what it is and I can evaluate it, if it looks like it's fun, if it's uh, gonna feel good, if it's something that's gonna give me something to add to my resume, then, then I, I might say, sure, I'll, I'll help you with that, that favor. But Isaiah doesn't do that. So Isaiah is not responding to a particular job. In fact, Isaiah, when he says, here am I, send me, he's not responding to a task or a calling as much as he is responding to the one who has called him. So if, if we were to ask Isaiah, why are you willing to follow the Lord anywhere? Why are you willing to say, here am I, send me? His response would have been because of who God is and because of what God has done. And God is going to call Isaiah to go and proclaim judgment throughout the land of Israel. And he's going to go and proclaim judgment essentially until every single person has rejected him and his message. The, God, the call that God is gonna give Isaiah is one that is incredibly difficult and lonely and even despised. So what was it about God that compelled Isaiah to say, I, I'll follow you anywhere before he even knew what anywhere was? Well, that's the question we're asking today because we are called to trust and to trust with a trust that leads us to follow. And, and if we're gonna sing, I'll follow you anywhere, knowing that that's gonna involve self-denial, knowing that's gonna involve us sharing the gospel with the lost, knowing that's gonna involve us ministering within the body of Christ, knowing that that may call us to live for Jesus in, a, in an unbelieving culture, knowing that we're called to serve and obey sometimes amid difficult circumstances, knowing that that may mean giving our life for his purpose and his glory, then we, we need to ask why. We need to examine what is it about Isaiah's call? What is it about our call that, that would lead us to say, I'll, I'll follow you anywhere? And the answer is found in verses one through seven. So let's, 
Let's read God's word, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 7. This is the eternal word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord lifted or sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Well, Uzziah had reigned for 52 years. And he had been a really good king. For the most part, the end of his reign, not so good. But for the most part, he had been a blessing. And if you can imagine if your grandchild has the same teacher in elementary school that your daughter had, and, and your daughter had the same teacher in elementary school that you had, then you, you get some sense. Life and culture, when you have one king for 52 years, whether he's good or bad, becomes kind of settled. And so when that king dies, the natural response is, what now? And that's the question that's echoing in the minds of, of, of the people of God and in the mind of Isaiah. And so God comes and in verses one through four, God reveals himself to Isaiah. We'll, we'll call this the revelation of God. And what God does is God focuses Isaiah's attention on the true king who is alive and well, who is enthroned in heaven, who is unaffected by Uzziah's death and who is reigning sovereignly over his world. This is the revelation of God. Notice some of the details. He, he saw that he was high and lifted up. The word high means exalted. The word lifted up means lifted up. If you think about an old movie, you know, where they have the king's mobile throne, uh, like on a stretcher and he's sitting on that throne and he has slaves that lift him up. And so here comes a, a procession of, of, the, of the royal court down the road. The one that you see is the king because he's lifted up above everybody. So what Isaiah sees is God's exalted and honored position in heaven. And then he says the train, that is the skirt or the hem, the, the outflow of his robe 
filled the temple. It flowed throughout the temple. Think of a, think of a bride who's coming down the aisle and she has on a, a beautiful wedding gown and that gown has a, a flowing robe that covers the aisle. When, when you see that bride and you see that wedding gown and you see that, that train going, filling up the aisle, you immediately realize, okay, this person is the focus. Okay, this, this is the most important person here. And that's, that's a word of advice for those guys who are gonna be getting married soon, okay? She's the important one. And so when, when he sees this, it's like this is, this is God's position in heaven. He is the focus. He is the, the priority of all that is happening. And, and then he sees these seraphim, which are these majestic angelic beings, and they're shouting, and they're shouting so loudly that the very foundations of heaven are shaking. And Isaiah sees them with six wings. They're flying with two wings around the throne of God. And they're covering their face with two wings. I, I, I think they're doing that because even these perfect majestic angels can hardly bear to be in the unapproachable light of the glory of God. You, you remember Moses? In Exodus 33 and 34, he, he, went, he was on Mount Sinai and he was receiving the law of God. And, and having received the law of God, he, he asked God, he said, God, can, can I see your glory? And, and God said, well, it'll kill you. And, and Moses was hard-headed, so he persisted. Well, can I, can I see your glory anyway? And so God said, I, I'll do this. I'll put you down in a hole in the rock so that you're covered. And I'll allow you to see the shadow of my glory. When my glory passes by, you can see the back shadow of my glory. And so Moses saw that and he came down the mountain. You remember what happened? The, the people pleaded with him to put a covering over his face because his face was glowing so intently that they couldn't even look at him because he had seen the back of the glory of God. And so maybe these angels are covering their face because even these perfect, sinless, majestic beings cannot fully grasp the intensity of the unassailable, unapproachable light of the glory of God. And then they are covering their feet. And I, I, I don't know why they're covering the feet. This is what I think. Next week, we're going to look at Exodus 3. And you remember in Exodus 3 when God told Moses, he said, you're on holy ground, so, so take off your shoes. I, I think there's something about our feet. We, we speak of people who have feet of clay. There's something about our feet that attaches us to the earth that, that reminds us that we're creatures. And, and, and I think maybe even these creatures in the presence of God have this sense of 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 ultimate praise to God. They recognize that they were creatures and that they, they themselves had to be humble before the presence of God. And then Isaiah sees smoke filling the house like, like the majestic glory of God that descended and, and filled the tabernacle. This, this scene that Isaiah sees is the scene of God occupying the throne of heaven. It's one of indescribable glory and transcendence and majesty and splendor and authority that commands our attention and demands our devotion. But, but notice, Isaiah not only sees, he hears. Amidst all of this glory that he sees, 
he hears the word of the seraphim and they're shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now these are, these are sinless, perfect creatures who do whatever God tells them to do. So they are saying exactly what God wants them to say. This is what God wants Isaiah to hear about his being, that he is holy, holy, holy. Now the Hebrews used repetition for a, a, a couple of devices. They used repetition for emphasis. So if, if I'm writing, I might underline something that I want to emphasize. If I'm typing, I might use bold font. If I'm, if I'm speaking, I might raise my voice. I might lower my voice. A lot of ways to emphasize something. So the Hebrews would use repetition. Jesus would say, verily, verily, I say unto you. That's because he was saying, hey, this is important. I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. So this is emphatically holy. God is emphatically holy. But the Hebrews also use repetition to express a superlative. We would say holy, holier, holiest. But the Hebrews simply used repetition. So holy, holy, holy is expressing not only that God is emphatically holy, but that he is holy to the superlative degree. He is as holy as he can possibly be. So what does that mean? That God is emphatically and superlatively holy. Well, I, I think three ideas. The first is to be set apart. The, the, the root word that, that Isaiah uses here means to be set apart. The word that's used in the New Testament that's equivalent is the word that's used for saints we are holy ones who are followers of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? It means we're set apart, right? We're set apart from the world. We're set apart to God. So when we think of God being set apart, set apart from what? Well, he's set apart from creation. The Bible begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So from the very beginning, there has been a Two-ness, if I can use that expression, there's been a two-ness about all reality. There is the creator who is God and there is the creation that is not God. That's everything else and the two are distinct. So if you, if you study Hinduism or Buddhism or Oprahism, you'll, you'll hear that all reality is ultimately one substance. And the divine is in everything. But what the Bible teaches is that while God is everywhere in creation, he is not creation. He is not the man upstairs. If, if, sorry if you're a country music fan. He, he's not a bigger, better version of us. He's not the cow roaming around the streets of India. He's not the tree that radical environmentalists are hugging. There is, there is a binary in the universe. There is God and there's everything else. And he alone is God. He is set apart and distinct. Secondly, the idea of God's holiness 
means that he is unique. That is, he's, he's one of a kind. He's in a class all by himself. When, when Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 2, 2, she said this, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. Peter and his companions were out fishing one night. Luke records in Luke 5, and they had been out fishing all night and not caught anything. They're coming back to shore and Jesus met them. And he said, hey, Peter, throw your nets out one more time. And Peter was exhausted. He's like, Lord, we didn't catch anything. We're the fishermen. We'll take care of the fishing. You're the teacher. You take care of the teaching. Jesus said, no, throw your nets out one more time. And Peter threw his nets out. And you remember what happened? The fish leapt into the net. And they had to call for help to get the nets on board of the ship. And there were so many fish that the boats began to sink. You remember Peter's reaction? In Luke 5, 8, Peter fell down before Jesus and he said, depart from me for I am an unclean man. In that moment, Peter was realizing Jesus is, he's in a, he's in a class all by himself. So there, there are certain things that are true only of God. Only God is eternal. Only God is omniscient. Only God is omnipotent. Only God is omnipresent. Only God is immutable. But he is all those things. There is nothing and no one who is like him. Thirdly, to be holy means to be entirely perfect. So whether we're speaking about God morally or if we're talking about God's plans, God's attributes, God's actions, God's word, everything about God is exactly as it should be. He is perfect in the entirety of his being. Now listen, this is the vision of himself that God desires for Isaiah to understand. God is saying, look, the king might be dead, but the king is alive and well. And he is ruling sovereignly in all majestic holiness over his creation with perfect greatness, perfect glory, and perfect authority. Now, perhaps in some of the dark, difficult days ahead, Isaiah would understand, when I set my heart to follow the Lord, I'm following the one true God who cannot die. When I say I'll follow him anywhere, I'm following the one true God who will not be defeated, but who is rather in full control of his creation. Isn't that what Jesus expressed to us in the Great Commission? Jesus said, I want you to go and proclaim the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Do you remember how Jesus began that commission? He began by saying, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. That Jesus was saying, as you go, you need to remember by divine right as the eternal son of God and by divine appointment by the father from all eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ possesses all power and authority. He is ruling and reigning right now. And that becomes foundational when we face dark and difficult days ahead. But here's the thing, in the future, that might bless 
just Isaiah, but in the immediacy of the, of the immediacy of the moment, it broke him. It broke him. So we move from the revelation of God in verse five to the ruin of Isaiah. And notice what he says. He says, woe is me. Woe is, a, is an impassioned expression of grief and despair that comes from recognizing we are condemned or accursed. He says, I, I am lost. That is, I, I'm cut off. I, I'm destroyed. I'm ruined. It's like a, if you leave a baseball outside, you know, and it gets waterlogged after a while, the seams rot and the cover starts to fall off, the string unwinds, and you realize that that baseball is no good. It's falling apart. That's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying, I am condemned and my life is falling apart. Ethically, he says, and religiously, I'm defiled. He says, I am unclean. So Isaiah sees in the light of God's holiness that he is condemned, alienated, and broken, and he's facing judgment before the God that he has just seen in verses one through four. Now listen, Isaiah was a good man. In fact, he was one of the best men, relatively speaking. But when he saw the majestic holiness of God, he fell apart. Later in Isaiah, he would write this in Isaiah 53, 6, all we, not, not all of you, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. He would write in Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. Seeing the holiness of God gave Isaiah an accurate picture of himself. I, I, I just want to pause. I, I, I really feel compelled to say this because I, I, I believe that there, are, there may be people here today and maybe you come every week and, and you come and you enjoy church and you talk about trusting and following Jesus because it just adds a little something to your life. But you've never bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord and you've never cried out to him as your savior because you don't think you have that need because you're a pretty good guy. And, and, and you know what? You probably are. In fact, you may be one of the best guys compared to other people. But listen, the standard of judgment is not our neighbor. The standard of judgment is God himself. The standard of judgment is God's holy character expressed through God's holy law. And so when we understand that, we understand why Paul would write in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And we understand we don't measure up and our sin, though it may be small compared to our neighbor, our sin brings us into a place of condemnation because the wages of sin is death. And please hear me, without deliverance from the guilt of sin, we are condemned and alienated and broken and facing the judgment of God who because he is holy will judge sin. 
So that brings us to verses six and seven, which is the remedy. So we have the revelation of God that, that breaks Isaiah, that shows him who he really is. And then the response of God to Isaiah's brokenness is his remedy. And his remedy is to redeem and to restore. So look at what God does. He comes. I'll give credit to Pastor Adam. He helped me understand this week. He, Adam reminded me that typically we see people with their sin going to the altar. But what happens with Isaiah in a very clear picture of the gospel is that God takes the initiative. We have God, we have the coal from the altar coming to Isaiah. So this is an act of grace. God sees Isaiah's need and he comes to meet that need, but he not only comes, he cleanses. With the burning coal, Isaiah is touched at the very point of his sin. And what happens? He says, your sin is taken away. Your guilt is removed. Your sin is atoned for, which means it's, it's covered over. The justice of God is satisfied. Now, doesn't, don't those two phrases sound so much like the day of atonement? You think back to Leviticus 16, and you remember God instructed them to bring two goats to the priest, and the priest would take one goat, and he would sacrifice the goat, and he would take the blood into the holy of holies, and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, the symbolic throne of God. And that was a picture, it was a demonstration that their sin was covered over by, by the blood. They were forgiven. But then they'd take the other goat and confess the sins of the people on that goat and they would drive it into the wilderness, symbolizing that their sin was taken far away, that their sin was forgiven and forgotten. And this is what God says to Isaiah. When you're touched by this coal from the altar, your sins are forgotten and they are forgiven. So in this moment, the one who was ruined is redeemed. The one who is condemned is justified. The one who is alienated is accepted. The one who was broken is restored. Isaiah needed something outside of himself. He needed grace. And so God, with marvelous, matchless grace, moved unilaterally, not responding to some foreseen goodness on Isaiah's part, not responding to religious acts of devotion that somehow earned forgiveness, but God came to one who was hopelessly stained by sin. He came unilaterally. He came sufficiently. He didn't come and say, Isaiah, let's, let's work out a little deal. I'll do my part. You do your part. We'll put your good and your bad on the scales and see how it weighs out. No, God came and did 100% of what was necessary for Isaiah's sin to be cleansed, forgiven, and forgotten. And God came instantly in the moment that the coal touched his lips. The moment that God's remedy was applied to Isaiah, Isaiah was cleansed. This is the power of God's saving grace. This is God's remedy for our brokenness and our condemnation. But, but look, God not only comes and cleanses, don't miss this, but by God's grace, Isaiah is also prepared and qualified to serve. Because remember, we're not just trusting, we're trusting and following. So what happens? Well, here's Isaiah. 
He's going to be called to be a prophet. How can he be a prophet when he has an unclean, dirty mouth? So listen, by cleansing Isaiah's mouth, God is not only removing his sin, but the very act of cleansing then qualifies Isaiah to serve and to follow. Do you see this? Isaiah goes all the way from woe is me to here am I by the grace of God. God comes, God cleanses, and God calls. And this is a perfect picture of the gospel of grace. The Bible says in Romans 3, or in John 3, 36, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides upon him already. That's our, that's our problem. And how does God respond to our problem? Well, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. And so John tells us in 1 John 4, 10, that even though we did not love God, God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atonement, the covering for our sin. So the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and went to the cross. And at the cross, God made him to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. So that in the death of Jesus, our sin is forgiven and forgotten because the Lord Jesus paid the debt sufficiently forever. And then on the third day, Jesus rose again, literally bodily rose from the grave. And Paul says in Romans 4, 25, that his resurrection causes us to be justified. He was raised for our justification. That is, Jesus secured eternal life for anyone and everyone who will trust in him for salvation is by grace. Do you see what God has done as a remedy for your sin and for mine? God has sufficiently, unilaterally, eternally provided everything necessary for anybody and everybody who will come to him in faith to be cleansed, to be set apart, to be brought into a relationship of peace with God and the unfathomable depth of God's grace is measured only by the unsearchable distance to which he will go to rescue a sinner. We're blessed in 1772 because in 1772, John Newton tied together the word amazing with the word grace. Because anybody who hears the gospel and responds in faith and is delivered from their sin understands why we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I hope that you'll not think less of me for saying this, but I like to watch documentaries about crime. Sorry. So I, I, was, I was watching a documentary about uh, illegal drug dealers and uh, they were interviewing uh, a drug dealer in, in, um, in, a, in a major U.S. city. And um, he was talking about his life and the death and the lawlessness and the money. And, and he had a lot of money. And this is what he said. He said, sometimes I think about what it would be like 
to live a normal life. Sometimes I think, what would it be like to be away from this, to be away from the drugs, to be away from the crime, to be away from the death, and just live a normal life? This is what he said. He said, but I had to stop and remind myself that I have blood on my hands. And he said, when you have blood on your hands, there's nothing that can just wash it away and make you normal. Now, I don't talk to my television. Some of you do. I learned a long time ago when I say, hey ref, that's holding. The ref doesn't hear me. I don't talk to my television, but I, 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 I tell you, tears came to my eyes and it welled up inside of me. I wanted to say to this guy, and I wanted to say there, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilt and stains. I, I wanted to say to him, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I can't say that to him, but I, I would say this to you, that if you'll come to Jesus, placing your faith in him and him alone, he will cleanse you and he'll forgive you and he'll make you his own forever. But that's not all. In Christ, listen, in Christ, God also qualifies us and calls us to follow him. What God does in Christ is he makes us new. He puts his love in our heart. He gives us the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who equips us, and who empowers us to follow and obey and to serve. And so when we ask, why should our trust lead us to follow? Isn't it the grace of God that takes us from woe is me to here am I? That we were ruined and God came and cleansed us and qualified us. And in that work more than any other, don't we see the holy perfection of God? And don't we see that here is a God who is worthy of our devotion? This is what Jesus, or this is what Paul taught throughout the New Testament when Paul said, why should you give? You know what his answer was? He said, remember the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor. Paul says, why should you do good works? He says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. When Paul says, why, why should you be a good neighbor? Why should you be a good citizen? In Titus 3.8, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works, but by his own mercy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, when he's asking the question, why should we witness? Why should we go on mission? Why should we be involved in the mission of God? He says, the love of Christ controls us because we know that Christ died for all. Every time the Bible talks about following Jesus, serving Jesus, being involved in the work of God, it points us to the gospel of grace. This is why we do what we do. 
So that following Jesus is not a checklist to try to earn God's acceptance or gain favor or, or grasp his approval. The gospel teaches us that we have all of that and we have all of that by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So our service, our following is just simply us saying, take my life and, and let it be consecrated Lord to thee, take my moments and my days, just, just let them flow in ceaseless praise. Why should you follow Jesus? Because look at Jesus, the gospel. What God has done for us in Christ has shown us that the holy creator is the gracious savior and his love and his grace compels us to follow. C.T. Studd famously said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no substitute can be too great. Excuse me, no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Well, listen, it's not just what God has done. It's who God is. That his very being is grace. And when we hear the gospel, when we preach the gospel, when we think about the gospel, we'll understand this is a God who's worthy of our devotion. Would you pray with me?